Amen. Thank you, Matt. Good morning, church. At this time, if you've got a kiddo who is third grade or under in the room, and you'd like them to go down the hall for their lesson as we open the scriptures for our sermon, the McCabe's are in the back of the room in the Blue Redeemer Kids Church. They can follow them down the hall this morning. Uh, If you're a guest with us, my name is Shannon. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer. We're glad that you've joined us. Uh, when you had a seat somewhere, you may have found a card like this somewhere around you. On one side of that card is a place for information about yourself, so we can send you some information about us. Other side of that card is a place for prayer requests. If there are things we can pray with you or for you about, we are honored to do that. If you fill out one of these cards, there is a box at the kiosk in the back of the room. You can drop it there on your way out. Uh, also, if you're online with us today or in person, you can find that same information, submit those same forms on the homepage of our website. Or you can scan the digital bulletin on the seat back in front of you and find that form there as well. Uh, if you've got a Bible this morning, why don't you open with me to Psalm 130. We're wrapping up this Exhale series we've been working through this summer as we've looked at selected psalms all summer long together. Learning as, as we live in a world in which we're inhaling a reality uh, that is uh, uh, at times broken, at, time, at times beautiful, learning to exhale theology in the face of the reality that we're inhaling. And as, we, as we've done that over the course of the summer, one of the things it's done is given us a real flesh and blood glimpse into a life, lifelong relationship with a living God. Because right? the psalmist, their relationship with God is coming out on the pages of the Bible. And so it's given us a picture of that together. So Psalm 130 is where we're going to be this morning as we wrap up this series. I invite you to turn there. If you don't have it in front of you, it'll be on the screen behind me as we read it and you can follow along there. But Psalm 130, beginning in verse 1, reads, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in His word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with Him is plentiful redemption. And He will redeem Israel from all His iniquities. This is God's word. I was in third grade. Uh, I was having a hard time seeing the board in front of the classroom, and so my parents finally took me to, to see an eye doctor, and whenever I got into the eye doctor's chair, you know, they do the whole thing where they put the lenses in front of your face, and they're like, is this better one or better two, or better three or better four? All right, so you got three and four. What about A or B or C? Or they did a whole thing. They examined my eyes. And to come to find out, I was incredibly nearsighted. In fact, today, without corrective lenses, right, contacts or glasses, I can't see clearly further than about right here in front of my face, okay? Uh, for those of you who know what prescriptions are like, right, my contact prescription is negative 7.5, okay? And so uh, I'm, I'm on the verge of legally blind without corrective lenses. So I'll just give you a little heads up. And so because I'm so nearsighted, I had a hard time seeing the board. I had a hard time seeing anything further than where my hand was right in front of my face, and so I remember getting glasses in third grade and wore the, all, those all the way up through middle school into high school and finally got contact lenses and was able, once I was able to touch my eyes, you know, actually put those jokers in, right? But the, that nearsightedness I've had all of my life. But the truth is, for every single one of us in the room, what plagues my eyes many times plagues our souls. 
that we have nearsighted souls. See, our first parents had nearsighted souls in the garden when they took the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and they ate it. And as a result of their sin, we come into the world as sinners by nature with bent and broken hearts that are clamoring for independence from God, and we become sinners by choice as we make decisions based upon the nearsightedness of our souls. You see, a nearsighted soul often makes decisions based only on the moment, only of what they can see right in front of them. What will bring me pleasure in this moment, or what will help me avoid pain in this moment? And because right, our consciences are so tuned in that manner, Oftentimes it leads us into sin because we're only thinking about the next step, not the next 10 steps ahead of us and where that might lead. And our response, whenever we find ourselves backed into a corner because of that nearsightedness, and when we begin to experience the consequences of our sin, is often the same as our first parents. We push away from God. We want to hide from God. We want to cover ourselves up. We want to sometimes blame shift. We want to deflect. We want to deny or ignore as a, and as a result of that, we end up living in what I would call a cul-de-sac of shame. Okay? That we're, we're just going in circles, experiencing shame after shame after shame as we cover and conceal. But I want you to know something this morning, church, is that because of God being who He is, we don't have to live that way. And that's good news. That's great news. So I want, you to look, look, I want us to look at this text this morning in Psalm 130 and see what the psalmist does when he finds himself in this, his own cul-de-sac of shame and learn how to respond in those moments where our nearsightedness causes us to fall into sin. And whether it's been a very public sin that everyone can see or a very private sin that no one knows about other than you and God, I want you to see how to respond this morning. All right? Sorry, Aiden. But there's a few things in this psalm that I want you to see. The first one is this, is that whenever we find ourselves in this position, I want you to notice that the author doesn't respond the way our first parents responded or the way many of us do. He doesn't deflect, he doesn't hide, he doesn't blame shift, he doesn't cover up, but he calls and cries out to God and which teaches us that our reflex as we bear up under the consequences of our sin ought to be to cry out for mercy. To cry out for mercy. In verses 1 and 2, the author says that it's out of the depths that he cries to the Lord. And he asks God to be attentive to his pleas for mercy. He's pleading before God that God would be merciful. You know what mercy is? It's distinct from grace. Grace is whenever we receive something that we did not deserve and that we did not earn. But mercy is whenever something that we did deserve and that we did earn is withheld. Right? So the consequences, the full weight of judgment is withheld from us. That's mercy. Okay? When my kids were a lot younger and they, they, got, they got whoopings. Okay? Whenever they, whenever they violated our direct orders. And oftentimes they would, they, we would talk about them just wanting grace. Can't you just be gracious in this moment? So that's not grace. That's mercy. And no, it's not going to be mercy. It's going to be judgment. Right? Because you're going to get a whooping. Okay, spare the rod, spoil the child. That was our philosophy, right? And so, but mercy, the psalmist is calling out to God for that. God, would you withhold what I rightly deserve on account of my sin and not destroy me? 
And the word for cry here literally means to call, to utter a loud sound for help, or to plead with someone as if you're pleading before a judge in a court of law. So in other words, the author here feels himself to be on trial before God on account of his sin, and he's crying out, uttering in this loud voice through tears and groans to help him and to give him mercy, withhold the full weight of his judgment that he rightly deserves. Let me ask you something, church. Have you ever cried that way to the Lord? Have you ever cried out to him, been so deep in guilt under the weight and consequences of your sin that you barely had words to speak. Almost like a a preteen going through puberty, your voice so full of emotion that as you pray it just cracks. Have you ever felt so low that you felt, and and the felt presence of God, God's always present, but His felt presence, the, the feeling that He's near, the feeling that He's close. Have you ever... Has that ever been so distant that all you could do is come close to him and call out, God, would you be merciful to me? Would you turn your ear to my cries for your mercy? Now, many, many, many may think this kind of prayer is reserved only for like really bad people, right? People who are in prison, Okay. Those kinds of people. Or for people when they first come under the conviction of sin and are converted to faith in Christ. But let me challenge that assumption here for a moment. It seems that in both the Old and the New Testaments, there are examples of people who were God-fearing individuals who walked with God, who were broken over their sin and recognized it. Right? For instance, in Isaiah chapter chapter 6, the prophet of Isaiah that God had chosen for his purposes and established to speak his word. Isaiah, whenever he has this vision of God seated on the throne in his temple, surrounded by all the angelic beings, all he can say is what? Woe is me. For, he doesn't just say woe is us. Everybody else out there is a sinner, right? He says, woe is me for I am a man of unclean lips. And I live in the, among a people of unclean lips. Isaiah says, I recognize my sin. Or consider the Apostle Paul who calls himself the foremost of sinners in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. And if you'll go back and read that, I want you to notice something. He doesn't say, I was the foremost of sinners. He says, I am the foremost of sinners. Here's Paul, right, who's been converted on the road to Damascus, goes from persecuting the church to preaching and planting churches, right? You've got his testimony and story of conversion. And he doesn't say, hey, in my pre-Christian days, when I was this person who was hunting Christians, I was the foremost of sinners. He says, now in my post-conversion days, I am the foremost of sinners. You're like, how in the world can that be? Here's how that is. I had a seminary professor tell me one time. He said, whenever the Holy Spirit moves into your life, right? He comes, like like you, moving into a new home, right? When he comes to take up residence and dwell in your life upon your conversion. He's like you when you move to a new home. For months sometimes, you've got bags and you've got boxes to unpack, all right? Sometimes those boxes sit in that extra guest room for years before you finally get to unpacking everything that you stowed away in them, right? But when the Holy Spirit moves into your life, He brings lots of boxes and lots of bags that He's going to be unpacking for the rest of your life. And as He unpacks in your life, 
you will come to realize there are still some rooms. There are still some closets. There are still some halls. There are still some basements that are left in the darkness. And this is, listen, some of you are like, yeah, I realize that. But let me encourage you this morning because, church, this is one of the ways you know you're a Christian. Right? Because the longer that you walk with God, the longer that you walk with God, the more deeply you recognize your sin. Right? The way that you know you're a Christian is not because you prayed a prayer when you were 11, but because God continues to pursue you. God continues to unpack things in your life. You continue to see where in your life. There may not be any of those big, grotesque public sins any longer, but it's those areas of your heart that are still contaminated by pride and selfishness. That he continues to unpack there. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He says, when a man is getting better, he understands more and more clearly the evil that is still left in him. When a man is getting worse, he understands his own badness less and less. So listen, when you're backed into a corner, not just, right, by the first realization of your sin, but sometimes by a fresh realization of that, no matter how long you've been walking with God. The only way out of the corner is not around God, but through God and crying out for mercy. It's the first thing the psalmist teaches us. Now listen, the felt presence of God, the tangible experience of His mercy in our lives is not always felt in a moment, in an instant. Right? And so we, we but we have a problem with that because we want to pull through the drive through place our order, right, and receive a bag full of mercy in our, our passenger seat that we can take home and be able to feast on. But God doesn't always work that way. Sometimes He delivers it in a moment and sometimes He delivers it over time as He slowly brings healing to the wounds that we've created on account of our sin. He slowly heals our hearts and our hurts as we learn to wait on him. And that's the second thing the psalmist teaches us. That we cry out to the Lord for mercy and we learn to wait on the Lord for his deliverance. Wait on him. In verses 5 and 6, the author writes these words. He says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. And I was taught somewhere along the way that any time somebody in the Bible repeats something, it's probably important. All right? And so he repeats that phrase more than the watchmen for the morning twice in the same verse. And I believe he's communicating how it is the psalmist is going about waiting for the Lord. Because to wait for the Lord is to eagerly look to Him and to wait for Him. And what is the psalmist waiting on God for? Now listen, we could get real, we could spiritual, try to spiritualize this, right? And say, well, the psalmist is waiting for God to show up so that he's waiting on a raise. It's not what the psalmist here is waiting for, right? He's waiting on a new car. That's not what the psalmist here is waiting for, okay? And Sadie knows it, right? He's not waiting, right, on... A new house. He's not waiting on right a, a abundance of children. That's not what he's waiting on. The psalmist is waiting for the extension of God's mercy, for God to raise him from the depths of his guilt over his sin, and for the felt presence of God to return in his life. 
the closeness and nearness of God. He's waiting for that gap to be closed and for the joy and peace that only nearness with God can provide to return. That's what he's waiting on. When he cries out for God's mercy, he's waiting for that felt presence for God to feel near to him once again. And the waiting that he describes here is one that he does with intensity, church. See, there are a few things that anyone waited for in the ancient world more than the watchmen waited for the morning. Right? The watchmen were those who were posted or positioned at the high places along the city walls. And they were keeping an eye out on the horizon, out on the distance for enemy troops, for invading armies. And as you can imagine, right, in a day in which there was no such thing as night vision goggles, okay, there was no such thing as radar. Okay, there was no such thing as drones equipped with night vision spectacles that could fly over the countryside and identify threats coming from a distance. The watchmen were positioned on the walls looking out, and as that sun fell on the backside of the horizon, and the earth was plunged into darkness for 10 to 14 hours a night, depending upon the seasons, right? Uh, as the earth fell into darkness, there was an anticipation that rose in their hearts, and Anxiety that rose in their hearts because they cannot have the same clarity of sight in the dark as they could at midday. And so they waited for the morning. They waited for the morning. That's what it was for them to wait with intensity. The most intense thing I perhaps have ever waited for in my life was the first time at three months old my daughter was wheeled away into surgery for, to, for a cranial vault procedure in which they removed portions of her skull, reshaped them, and put them all back together with plates and screws. And I can remember sitting in the waiting room, waiting for the surgeons to finish. I can remember sitting in the waiting room, waiting as she was transferred into the PICU, and waiting for those nurses or those assistants to come out and say, you can come see your daughter again. And listen, I was surrounded by people who I had known and loved for much of my life, my adult life. And we were talking, but my mind was not on our conversation. My mind was on the condition of my daughter. And I can remember I had to go back and apologize to someone who was sitting next to me when the nurse came through the door and said, Sarah Collins, parents of Sarah Collins, because at that moment, right, whatever he was saying, I don't even remember what he was saying. I just got up and walked away in the middle, midstream of his sentence. I had to go back and apologize to him later because I was waiting with such intensity to see my child again. That's how the watchmen are waiting for the morning. And that's the kind of waiting the psalmist is doing on the Lord. As he waits for the felt presence of God with intensity. But it's also a waiting with certainty. With certainty. See, the watchmen waited with certainty because every, again, 12 hours or so, give or take, they knew the sun would rise and morning would come. They had a certain expectation that that sun was going to rise once again. It was going to crest over the hills and the horizon. And its light was going to be shed across a land that had been engulfed in darkness for 12 hours. So they waited with an, with an intensity and a certainty. That's the kind of waiting the psalmist says he's doing as he waits on the felt presence of God. And the depths of the guilt that he bears as a consequence of his sin. Now notice again. There's a lot here. I don't have time even to get to all of it, but I'm going to give you one more thing. The author says he is right now in the present actively waiting. It's a present tense verb. 
in the text. So God has not yet shown up to relieve him. But he's also not turned to something or someone else to find the relief that he's looking for because he knows that he cannot medicate his guilt away. Only God can eradicate it. Only God can show up and deal with it. Now many in our culture, listen, we do not experience this type of God showing up to eradicate and deal with our guilt because rather than waiting on God, we learn to medicate our guilt with experiences or substances. We learn to pacify that pain. We live in a culture, listen, that wants to shout about grace, celebrate grace, but is silent about guilt. However, when you remove the sense of guilt attached to sin, listen, I want you to know something. You also rob grace of its beauty. You rob it of its beauty. You gut it. In fact, when the sense of guilt is removed, grace is no longer a diamond, but now it's just a lump of coal. And here's why. Because it's only under the weight of guilt on account of sin that grace, like that that pressure that's bearing down, that grace becomes beautiful against the backdrop of the blackness of our sin. But rather than crying to God for mercy and waiting for the Lord, oftentimes we look to deal with our guilt by medicating it away in several ways. One, with substances. With substances. The Centers for Disease Control reported that in 2016, overdose deaths involving opioids had quadrupled since 1999. Four times. And the sales of these prescriptions had also quadrupled. From 1999 to 2015, more than 183,000 people had died in the U.S. from overdoses. And that epidemic has continued into 2022 as well. And listen, I want you to see something here. This rise over the last several decades just happens to coincide with the collapse of any objective standard of ethics or morality based upon God's law. Those two things have happened at the same time. Now, I'm not saying that all addiction is related to the collapse of objective morality, but I wonder how much of the massive spike in addiction to pain pills and other prescription drugs has risen as we try to erase guilt from our collective conscience, as we've embraced a subjective view of reality and morality and ethics. I wonder how many people have said, listen, I know intellectually, my culture tells me intellectually, I'm not supposed to sense any guilt over my chosen lifestyle, but I do, and I don't know how to deal with it. The only way that I can escape it is by trying to numb it with substances. And maybe what started as an attempt to deal with physical pain became an attempt to deal with emotional and spiritual pain in the life Because I don't know any other way to escape the sense of guilt that my culture tells me shouldn't be here. If all morality and ethics are subjective, then I shouldn't have any guilt about how I'm living. But I do have it. What do I do with it? The only thing I know to do is to numb it. So whether it's prescription pills or alcohol or hard narcotics... The attempt to numb our conscience, assuage and lessen and lower our sense of guilt. I wonder how much of that is underneath some of the addiction in our culture. We medicate it with substances. We medicate it with media. With media. We live in a culture, church, that is fascinated with smart devices. I am too. I'm guilty as charged. 
Okay? We've got phones, tablets, watches. We've got AI, right? All these artificial intelligences. Now listen, most of us in the room have seen Terminator. Okay? And we know how this ends. Okay? It doesn't end well for us. Okay? But we're fascinated with technology. And while on one level, listen, devices make modern life convenient, I want you to know something. They also make modern life very complex. Very complex. And the complexity of modern life, here's what it does. Oftentimes, it, for, it, it'll, it allows us to ignore our inner life. Because we can spend so much time focused on other people's outer life that we can ignore our own inner life. In fact, there are actually detox facilities in other parts of the world where people who are addicted to devices go for help. That's how much of a problem this has become. Right? We rob ourselves of any awareness of our inner life as we're always looking out to a screen rather than in to the condition of our souls. Third, we medicate sometimes with merchandise. Listen, for some women, their fascination with shopping, fashion, and decorating is more than simple good taste, but an attempt to medicate their guilt and not deal with the depths of their souls. If we can lose ourselves in clothes, if we can lose ourselves in paint colors, if we can avoid dealing with the real condition of our souls, we can cover our blemishes with concealer and clothes, we can medicate our guilt. And for some men... Their fascination with sports and fantasy leagues and hobbies is more than simple time to unplug, but an attempt to medicate their guilt and not deal with the deep parts of their souls. If they can lose themselves in fantasy stats, toys, trips, and tools, they can avoid dealing with the real condition of their hearts. But then finally, sometimes we medicate it through restitution. We try to medicate our guilt through restitution. You know what making restitution is? Essentially, to make payment to someone else for an injury or a loss that you have caused. And rather than crying out for mercy, church, there are some who are trying to make up for their badness by their goodness. And listen, this is the root of much of traditional religion and legalism and moralism. Of saying, listen, I know, I feel a sense of guilt, and the only way I know to deal with it is to be as good as I possibly can be for the rest of my life because they believe deep down somewhere that God would love and accept me if I perform up to his standards. And so I will make restitution. I will pay God back. I will show him that I'm worthy of his love. I will show them that I'm worthy of his acceptance. I will show him that I'm worthy of his presence. But it doesn't work that way. The gospel is completely counterintuitive. The gospel says none of us, no, no, not one, is righteous. Worthy of God's love and acceptance. But the beauty of the gospel is that God extends that offer to anyone who would not trust in what they have done, but what Christ has done on their behalf. See, all of our attempts to medicate ultimately destroy us. They destroy us. And here's why. Because when we med- try to medicate our guilt in one of these ways or others, it's like taking ibuprofen for massive headaches when you have a brain tumor growing under the surface. We want the pain to go away, but we don't want to discover the source. Right? And our guilt's not like a broken bone that's got to be set and cut out. 
You can medicate your guilt all day while never dealing with the source. And the more you treat the symptoms but never deal with the source, the less relief you experience. And so you compound your sin by looking for more medication, which creates deeper and deeper and deeper senses of addiction. All of this is an attempt not to deal with God because we think if I can dodge guilt, I don't have to go to Him, deal with Him. Yet here's what this text tells us. It says, stop trying to medicate what only God can eradicate. Stop trying to find relief on your own from what only God can remove. Stop trying to conceal what only God is able to cut away. Wait for the Lord. But how do we do that? The third thing in this text that it teaches us is this. So we cry and we wait, but we also hope. We hope in his word. Look, I left something out in verse 5 when I read it earlier. I wait for the Lord and my soul waits. In his word, I hope. So there's a connection in the psalmist's mind between hoping and waiting. But what is it? I believe what the connection consists of is this, that to wait on God is to hope in his word. In particular, his promises. In other words, God has promised, and I will wait eagerly, expectantly, with intensity, and with certainty for him to fulfill his promise. Charles Spurgeon said it this way. He said, God's word is a true word, but at times it tarries. If ours is true faith, it will wait the Lord's time. So here's the deal. What does this text show us? It is this, to expect God to hear your pleas for mercy and respond. To expect, what hope is, to expect. To expect God to remove your guilt and receive you with grace. To expect God to raise you from the depths and deliver you from despair. To put all your hope in God to be merciful so that you avoid medicating. So that as long as you have to wait on the felt presence of God to return in your life, you continue to wait on Him, cry to Him, plead with Him for mercy so that you don't turn aside and say, I'm going to use substances or I'm going to use merchandise or I'm going to use technology or I'm going to use experiences or I'm going to use vacations and travel and trips in order to assuage my guilt. Then you wait on His promises. See, if you send your way into what feels like exile, and some of us have, all of us have it sometimes, and some of you may be there today, then what you need to learn is that there's no refuge from God. Jonah discovered that, didn't he, as he ran from God? That there was no place he could find refuge from God. God was able to chase him down on a ship across the Mediterranean and even in the belly of a fish at the bottom of the ocean. There is no refuge from God. There is only refuge in God. It's the only place that we're able to find safety and security. It's in Him. And crying out to Him, waiting on Him and believing in His promises. Promises like Psalm 34, verse 22. The Lord redeems the life of His servants. None of those who take refuge in Him will be condemned. So no matter how low you feel under the consequences of shame and guilt, when you cry out to Him, the Bible promises that those who would seek refuge in Him, they wouldn't be condemned. No matter how much you condemn yourself, God has not condemned you if you call out to Him and plead with Him for mercy and repentance. 
Or Psalm 103, verses 11 to 12, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Or Psalm 145, verses 17 and 19, the Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. Why should you hope in God and cry out to him? Because he hears, church. He hears the cry of those who call. He restores the life of those who find refuge in him. So learn to set your feet on the firm plateau of God's promises and hope in him, hope in his word. So crying, waiting, and hoping. We have to learn to say yes to those things and say no to medicating our guilt with substances or experiences so that we don't ignore our inner life. But this text gives us one final thing to consider as fuel for that crying and that waiting and that hoping. And that's this. Is that God? He is worth waiting for. He's worth waiting for. See, this, tells, this text tells us that there are three things that are with God that you can get nowhere else. Ah, and this, listen, this is... This is beautiful. If you're a believer in the room this morning, my hope is that you feel your heart leap inside as we look at these three things that are with Him, that are with nothing else and with no one else. The first one is this. With Him is steadfast love. In verse 7, the psalmist says, For with the Lord there is steadfast love. As I read that this week, I thought of the book of Hosea, the story of the prophet that God calls to marry a prostitute, right? Who's signing up for that one, okay? And he says to Hosea, marry her as an object lesson of my loyal, faithful love to my people because my people have been a harlot. My people have been a prostitute. My people have been words that the Bible uses that you may not find very sanitary on a Sunday morning. My people have run around behind my back with the gods of the other nations to worship, serve, love, and honor them and abandon me. And so every time she runs around on you, you move toward her in love. You redeem her and set her free from the bondage she finds herself in essentially as a sex slave. That you are loyal to her even when she is unfaithful to you. And let that be a picture to my people of my loyal love to them, even when they've been unfaithful to me. Paul will say it this way in the book of 1 Timothy, that even when we are not faithful, that God himself is faithful to us. And with him there is steadfast love. There is never giving up, unending, unbreaking, covenant committed love to his people. And you will find that nowhere else. Listen, there is no steadfast love that you can purchase in a store as merchandise to bring home and consume. And there is no steadfast love on a screen. So you can medicate yourself with merchandise or with movies, but there is no steadfast love in them. It's only with Him. 
Second with him is forgiveness. In verse 3, the author recognizes that if God related to his covenant people as a ledger-keeping God, that no one could stand in his presence, that all would be wiped out. And then in verse 4, he says, but with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. In other words, the psalmist says there is pardon with God so that we cannot just merely go free, but we might live a life of reverence before Him, honoring Him in our thoughts, words, and deeds. As Paul says in the book of Romans, should we continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means that God's forgiveness frees us from living a life bound in chains to our own desires as we live to fear Him. And listen, church, that forgiveness that God extends cannot be found in a bottle and it cannot be found on a beach. Nothing that you try to medicate yourself with will provide the kind of forgiveness that your heart is searching for. And then third, the text tells us, with Him is plentiful Let me say that word again, plentiful redemption. This forgiveness is no cheap grace. God does not merely wink at our sin, but he pours his wrath out on his son. That word plentiful redemption is the idea of abundant redemption. So you know what the author doesn't say in the text? He doesn't say with him is dutiful redemption. With him is minimal redemption. He says with him is abundant, plentiful, overflowing, a harvest that is bursting at the seams. That kind of redemption. This means that you don't have to try to get God on your good side by your good behavior. That's why restitution doesn't work. But it means that if you're his child, his heart is for you to redeem you. And he possesses the means to redeem you from any mess that you've created. And one day will redeem all of his children from all of the mess of this world. So there is no redemption through restitution. Redemption only comes through substitution, church. That's the only place you can find it. There's so many pictures of that. I saw one this week that I was captivated by took my son and a few of his friends to go see the new Thor movie, right? Thor, Love and Thunder, right? And ever since then, for some reason, I've had these 80s rock songs in my head because they make up the soundtrack of the movie, okay? Well, we went to watch the movie, and in the movie, okay, Thor obviously is one of the leading characters, or else it wouldn't be named Thor, Love and Thunder. Uh, but in the movie, there is this, the, the movie starts out. You've had enough time to go see the theaters if you wanted to, okay? So I'm just going to go ahead and tell you. There'll be some spoiler alerts in here, right? But the movie starts out with this man cradling his daughter, weeping over her, pleading with the gods to save her. But they do not. And then he stumbles into an oasis where he meets one of these gods that he had been pleading with. And the god basically is a joke to him. And so he secures this, I know, it's, it's, 
fiction, right? He secures this sword that would strike down the gods. And he kills that god. And then he goes on a rampage to kill all the gods of all the worlds. To destroy everything and everyone. Out of his pain and suffering, all he can think about is revenge. Killing everyone who hurt him. And so whenever he shows up on earth... And he comes to the new Asgard, where all the people from the old Asgard, the planets, right, have now taken up residency. I think it's somewhere in Sweden, okay? Right? But somewhere in Viking territory. And he begins to demolish the village and plunder the people. And all of a sudden, Thor shows up in order to protect his people. And he begins to fight, but there's also a new lady Thor that's there, right? It's good stuff, right? A new lady Thor. Which happens to be his ex-girlfriend, whose name was Jane Foster. All right, She becomes Lady Thor because she hears Thor's once shattered hammer calling out to her. And so she goes and she finds the hammer and the hammer begins to shake in her presence. And it comes back together and she is able to wield the hammer. And when she does, she picks up the hammer and all of a sudden she's clothed in this Thor outfit, right? With these biceps that just won't quit, okay? And so she's like Jack, just like Thor. And so she begins, they begin to fight together. Thor's like, who is this? Okay, because he doesn't recognize her at first. And then he comes to realize who she is. And so they fight him off. But before he leaves the earth, he captures all the Asgardian children and takes them into captivity and holds them as a ransom so that Thor would come free them. He could kill Thor and he could get to the center of the universe where he could find this being called eternity that could basically undo all created order. That's what he's looking for. So he's holding the children in captivity. But what Thor doesn't realize about his ex-girlfriend is that earlier in the movie, he doesn't see this, but we do as an audience, she had been diagnosed with stage 4 cancer. She's going through chemotherapy. But the treatment's not working. And toward the end of the movie, whenever it comes time for the final showdown between Thor and what, what the, 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 the name that the villain was given in the movie is the God Butcher because it goes around killing all the gods of all the worlds. Before the final showdown, Thor is in the hospital with Jane and Jane's face is sunken. She's pale. You can tell that cancer is eating away at her body. And the doctors say to Thor, there is something that is keeping the treatments from working. And we don't know what it is. And it's like in that moment, you can see Thor has an aha moment. It's the hammer. And so he sits on the bed with Jane and he says, I've got to go rescue the children, but you have to stay here because if you pick that hammer up again, if you pick it up one more time, you will die. And so she agrees reluctantly to stay. And Thor, you know, takes his axe and flies off to go rescue the children. But while, when he shows up in the place where the God Butcher is and all the children are, they begin to fight against this villain. And as they're fighting, the God Butcher gets the upper hand, has Thor at the end of his sword about to kill him. And in that moment, the shot cuts back to Jane in the hospital bed, turning her eyes toward the hammer. And the hammer is now shaking and glowing. And you can see it in her eyes. Like she's trying to choose between what she will do. Will she take up the hammer, wield it one more time to go be a part of this rescue plan for the children and save Thor's life? Or will she stay there and preserve her own life? 
And the scene cuts back to Thor at the, at, the, at the end of the God Butcher's sword and the children all being right held by his minions. And before the God Butcher can plunge the sword into Thor's neck, Jane comes flying in with the hammer, just knocks the God Butcher off of him. They then together fight the God Butcher, defeat him. Everything is good. And then at the end of the movie, she falls to her knees because the cancer is taking over her body, and she ends up dying in Thor's arms. Everybody say, oh, oh, right? She dies in Thor's arms at the end of the movie. But as I was sitting there watching all of this storyline unfold, my heart was captivated by it. Because what I saw in that moment was substitution. See, there was one who knew at the very cost of her life that she could be a part of rescuing the children. She could be a part of saving Thor as well. Would she give her life in sacrifice out of love for the sake of those who needed her? Or would she save her life for herself? And what does she do? She gives her life to redeem. You know what it means to redeem? To release, to set free. She sets all the children free by going to rescue them and giving her life. And listen, church, that's a beautiful picture to me of the gospel in which God himself in the person of Jesus Christ, who had known the glory of being with the Father and with the Spirit all of eternity past, chose at a point in time, as the Father said, it, the, the, the fullness of time has come. He entered into human history, clothed himself in flesh, was a like you and I, who lived in our place, died in our place, rose from the grave, substituted himself on our behalf out of love for us, rescued God's children, redeemed them, set them free. That does not come through restitution and you working your way back into the good graces of God, but it comes through rescue. So we cry out to him for mercy. We wait on him for his felt presence to return. We hope in his word and his promises because he is worth waiting for. Because there's no one else who has steadfast love. No one else in whom there is forgiveness. And no one else in whom there is plentiful redemption, church. In verse 8, he tells us he redeems us from all of our iniquities. The iniquities of our eyes, the iniquities of our ears, the iniquities of our tongues, the iniquities of our hands, our hearts, our, our minds. There is not one iniquity that is beyond his ability to rescue us from. But listen, those promises were only made to God's covenant people. That's who he's talking to in the psalm in the Old Testament. And they only pertained today to God's covenant people who have placed their confidence and faith in Christ. Is that you this morning? If it is, if it is, church, hope in his promises. Cry out to him for his mercy. Wait on his felt presence to return. And wait and wait and wait and wait because he's worth it. And if that's not you this morning, I want to encourage you. If you will cry out to him, he is able to be found. 
he's able to be found. If you would place your confidence and trust and faith in Christ and Christ alone, that he will save, restore, heal. It will take time. I'm not promising an instant restoration of a marriage, an instant restoration of of relationships between kids and parents. I'm not promising instant deliverance from the consequences of sin. What I am promising is that God will slowly heal over time the wounds and hurts of your heart as well if you will cry out to Him and trust in Christ. So either way, cry out to Him for mercy. Wait on Him. Hope in Him because He's worth it. Let's pray together. Father, this morning, I pray that your word, as it's gone forth, that it would accomplish the purpose for which you have sent it. Father, I pray that you would bring about in the lives of your people a confidence in your word that they would hope in you. They would wait on you. They would cry out to you. Because there's nowhere else they can find love. There's nowhere else they can find forgiveness. And there's nowhere else they can find redemption. And Father, for those who do not know you, who have never trusted Christ, who have never come face to face with their own sin and rebellion, Father, I pray that you would be gracious to them this morning and open their eyes to see it. Open their ears to hear your voice. Open their hearts to experience the conviction of your Holy Spirit. And they would not run away from that conviction toward medications. But they would run toward your Son and cling to Him, knowing that He is the only one, the only one, and the only way that their guilt can be fully and finally dealt with. May they cry to you out of the depths, May you hear their pleas for mercy. May they wait on you. And may they find hope in the one who is firm and unshakable. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. This morning, as we respond to what the Lord has said through his word, I invite you to stand as we sing together. If you've got questions about the sermon, questions about this church, if you're a guest with us, I'll be at the back of the room at the kiosk there as you leave today. I'd love to connect with you. Love for you to stop by and introduce yourself if you're a guest with us. Love to visit with you. If you need prayer, I'd love to pray with you as well. Uh, But we just invite you to lift your voices, lift your hearts this morning as we sing in response to what God has said, waiting on Him, waiting on Him, and finding Him to be faithful. God 